Welcome to our small group series, The Life of Moses. If you're interested in joining a small group, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Join us as we explore Life of Moses, the story of the Lord drawing His people out of slavery and into a relationship with Him. Good morning. Uh, a few months back, we took a survey uh, just to see what the level of interest was in our congregation around issues uh, involving social justice and things happening in our culture. And that was really helpful. Appreciated you doing that. One of the things that came back on that survey is that the highest area of interest had to do with immigration and refugees. So we thought it would be good to try to address that issue. And we are putting together a seminar that'll take place on October 20th on Saturday night and then also on October 21st. You can come either one. We did it on Saturday for the Saturday evening service and the one on Sunday will be for everybody who comes in the morning. Um, We'll serve pizza, lunch, and then we've asked Denise Chang, who is uh, uh, Tens Waterstone, who actually has a master's in immigration policy and has been to the border and really understands what's going on to come and share with us, and then we'll have a panel. Our our goal is not to give you a political philosophy or even to address the political side of that. Our goal is to figure out how, as believers, can we engage to help people who, who are seeking asylum or who are refugees? How do we address that? Uh, in a way that's constructive. So if that's an area of interest in you, for you and you have questions and you want to know more, I'd really encourage you to come and get some firsthand information at that seminar. So that's coming up October 20th. Let's pray. Father, I just want uh, this morning for your spirit to speak and for us to have ears that listen. Would you empower your word this morning? Make it alive so that it it, it dives deep into our hearts and to our minds. Uh, Help us wrestle where we need to wrestle this morning. Uh, um, Help us see ourselves and be challenged where we need to see ourselves and be challenged. Help your word this morning to develop us into the kind of people you want us to be. May it be powerful in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In his book, uh, Exodus and Revolution, Michael Walser says there are three lessons that you can actually take from the Exodus experience The first lesson is that uh, you were probably living in some kind of Egypt. The second lesson is there is a better place, a more attractive land, a promised land, if you will. And the third lesson is that to get to that better place, that promised land, you have to go through the wilderness. This morning, I want us to wrestle with how you get through the wilderness. Now, when you go to scripture, the wilderness is uh, a desert place. It's barren. It's a place where you just have to to struggle to survive. Uh, Little water, uh, little grass, little food, few animals. It's it's desolate. It's, It's a hard place to be. It's the place of struggle. And in our lives, that's exactly what's is what the wilderness represents. We all go through wilderness experiences. There are moments in our lives that are just plainly difficult. They're hard. Sometimes life is brutal. And the truth of the matter is nobody gets out of life unscathed. Nobody is exempt from wilderness experiences. Uh, um, and, and they can come in all kinds of forms and all kinds of, of varieties. For you right now, maybe your marriage is a wilderness. Uh, it's, it's barren and you don't know what to do and you're trying to struggle through and you're asking God to do something and he doesn't seem to be showing up and you're not sure, take the next step forward and your spouse isn't being much help. And it, it's just hard. 
For, for some of you, uh, you've been divorced and that's a wilderness. I mean, you're wrestling with, with, with this wound, this, this hurt in your life, this sadness, uh, um, and at the same time, a sense of relief. And sometimes there's a sense of shame and a sense of guilt. And now there's a sense of loneliness and you're not sure what the steps forward are. How do you get, how do you get through that? So for some, uh, a singleness is, is a wilderness. You don't, you don't want to be single. You've been asking God to bring somebody into your life, but he's not answering. And you're tired of living life alone. Tired of sleeping alone. You're tired of going places alone. You're, you're just tired of the whole thing. And you're tired of, of, of waiting. For, for some people, their job's a wilderness. You hate it. You don't like your boss, you don't like what you do, uh, you dread mornings, you simply live for the weekends and it feels like this, the most difficult thing in your life is to, to go to the place where you work. But you, you gotta do it. You gotta get through. Cause you need to eat and you need to pay your mortgage. How do you get through? For some people, the wilderness is, is What's going on with their health? Maybe you struggle with chronic pain. And it's unrelenting and it's having this horrendous impact on you. Pain turns your focus inward. And you're not sure how to get through, how to make things better. In fact, you're beginning to lose hope. And you're not sure things will ever be different. For some people, old age is a wilderness. Uh, As you get older, things just begin to fail. And you can't do what you used to do. And now you're feeling insignificant. And you're trying to figure out what what you can do to to make a difference in the world. And you're beginning to lose those people who are close to you. And they're they're dying off. And you're feeling like you're the only one left. And you're not even sure you want to be here. And yet, how do you get through? How do you get through the wilderness. Now, I think one of the most important things to understand about the wilderness is more often than not, it's a time of testing. It's interesting. We're going to look at Israel in the wilderness this morning, chapter 15, 16, and 17. And the word, the Hebrew word for test is used five times in these chapters, and it's the Hebrew word nasah. And typically, when we think of the notion of testing, we think of it as evaluative. Because the word means to prove or to test or to evaluate. And it's kind of like testing is probing to see what's inside, what's going on, what the character is like. It's evaluative. But the reality is in scripture, this word nasa is used in a little different way. It has a little different tone to it oftentimes. It's used in a developmental way. In fact, sometimes you could translate the word uh, as to train. A couple passages will help us here. Exodus twenty twenty, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you. And we think, okay, he's going to evaluate them. But, but then look what he says, so that the fear of the God will be in you and keep you from sinning. So he's not trying to evaluate them. He's trying to train them. He's trying to help them understand and develop a, a, a fear of God. Why? So they'll be more obedient. So so testing here has this notion of development. Deuteronomy 8.16 actually is referring to the passages we're going to look at this morning. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you. Now again, he's not trying to evaluate them. He's trying to develop them. He's trying to train them. Why? So that in the end it might go well with you. In other words, the wilderness is in our lives are there oftentimes as a training ground where God wants to develop our faith, develop our ability to depend on him, develop our our trust. And the fact is, the development of trust oftentimes takes stress. It takes stress in our lives to develop strength. Uh, Last year, we, we had a Blaze maple planted in our backyard because my wife loves the color uh, that it turns in the fall. So I'm waiting to see what color it turns in this fall because sometimes they don't turn the way you think they have. But they planted the tree and you know when they plant a tree it comes in this ball and they put 
what do they do? They put these stakes on every side of the tree. And they do that because that tree doesn't have any roots. So if the wind comes up, it just topples over. So they have to stake it into the ground. But when the guys got done planting the tree, he told me, he says, don't, uh, don't leave these stakes on, uh, only the first season. And I thought, well, why? He says, well, you gotta take the stakes off because the tree has to be stressed to develop its strength. In other words, it has to be, be moved by the wind and bent by the wind and, and punished by the wind in a sense, stressed by the wind, because that's essential for it at the cellular level to develop strength. And if you don't do that, you end up with a very weak tree. So once the roots are in, you take the stakes off and you let the wind blow because it's good for the tree. I think that's true for us spiritually. God puts us in the wilderness at times because he wants to develop our ability to depend and trust him. So we want to look at, at uh, Israel's experience in the wilderness this morning. There's three tests that they go through in a sense. I want to look at those, and then I want to step back and ask a question that we should be asking, which is normal to ask, and once I ask it, you're going to go, yeah, I've been asking that. So we're going to address that question, and then we're going to see what lessons we can learn from their experiences in the wilderness. So let's look at their experience. Um, three things happened to them. Bitter waters in the wilderness is sure. Three days out from the Exodus, they come to this place. Uh, uh, it's probably springs. There's 600,000 people, so this issue of water and food, the, these are big deals, right? And they come to this place, they're excited, they haven't had water, they're thirsty, and, they, and it's bitter. It's bitter, you can't, you can't drink it. So they, they, they do what? They begin to grumble against Moses. And God says, throw a stick in the water, and he throws a stick in the water, and the water becomes sweet, and everybody's, oh, this is awesome. 45 days later, they come to the wilderness of sin. And now the issue isn't water so much, but the issue is meat and bread. Uh, these are huge logistical deals, right? They have herds and animals, uh, uh, flocks with them. They can eat those animals they brought with them, but pretty soon they're gonna run out. That's not the staple of their diet. The staple of their diet was the bread they would eat. But guess what, folks? There's no bread in the wilderness. There, there's no wheat in the wilderness. There's nothing to harvest in the wilderness. This is a big deal. How do you feed 600,000 people and their animals in the wilderness? So this time, uh, they all come to Moses and they're grumbling. They're complaining. What, what are we going to eat? We, we should have stayed. <laughs> should have stayed in Egypt. At least we had food and bread there. But again, crisis, grumbling, response, God provides. He, he sends them quail that evening, and then the next day this weird thing happens. Manna comes down with the dew. And uh, manna, the, word, the Hebrew word manna simply means, what is it? Which is what they were asking. They saw this thing on the ground, and they said, what is it? It's, well, it's what is it? It's manna. And manna is white, the text tells us, like seeds of coriander, and it tastes like wafers made with honey. It's incredibly versatile. You can bake it, you can fry it, you can boil it. You can do all kinds of things with manna. And evidently, it's incredibly nutritious. So he provides what they need to survive in the wilderness. Uh, third, they go on to a place called Rephidim. And again, there's no water. Only this time there's no water at all. It's not that it's bitter. It's that it's non-existent. Now, now surviving without bread and meat, you can do that for a while. Especially because you have supplies. But water, it becomes an immediate need. And they don't have a way of carrying it with them. There's 600,000 people. 
and there's all kinds of flocks and animals. And that's a crisis. This time they go to, to Abraham, Abraham, they go to Moses, I keep my story straight. Jeez. Um, they go to Moses, and, and they're ticked, they're angry. Uh, in fact, Moses goes to God and says, hey, hey God, they're, they're about ready to stone me. They're really grumbling this time. Um, fascinating, God doesn't get angry with him. He just tells Moses, go to Horeb, and it's this rocky place. Take the staff I gave you and hit the rock. And when he does that, water comes out of the rock. Water from what's dead and lifeless. You begin to see a pattern, right? There's a a crisis over a basic need, a response of grumbling, and then God's provision. You see this again and again and again. And, And you get a sense that God is trying to teach them, look, you can depend on me. Trust me. But all that raises a question, doesn't it? Why was it so hard for the Israelites to trust God? Why do they grumble and doubt? I mean, haven't you been asking that question? They go, <laughs> think, they've experienced the 10 plagues, all these amazing things, the firstborn are killed, and it's just incredible. And, and then they, they plunder the Egyptians, they give them all their stuff, and, and then they leave, and the Egyptian army is coming, and they don't know what they're doing, they're on the edge of the Red Sea, and the sea parts. And they walk through on dry ground with the water on each side, and then the Egyptian army comes in, and he, they've watched God destroy the Egyptian army, and these 10 10 plagues, and you would think, don't you guys get it? You really going to grumble about a little water and food? Right? I mean, hasn't that question struck you? Because we read it from our perspective, right? And we have a lot of understanding about the nature of God, that he's consistent, that he's faithful, that he's powerful. If he's that interested in taking care of you, you really don't have much to worry about no matter where you're at. They don't get it. Why? Well, well, part of it is they don't respond rationally, okay? They're, they're responding emotionally to the crisis of the moment. And you can understand that because, quite honestly, these are life and death issues. If they don't get water, they die, their kids die, their families die, their livestock dies. I mean, life is over. This is not just, yeah, I would like a drink. I mean, we have no sense in our culture what it's like to be without water because we're never, we never, ever hardly thirst. What, you're in the wilderness, in the desert? There's no options. There's no river to walk to. There's no lake to go to. There's a few springs, but if you can't find one, you You die. So, so it's a legitimate concern for them. Second, I, I think they have some false expectations, right? They had this notion that they were leaving Egypt. They were going to the promised land, this place of milk and honey, and it's supposed to be wonderful. And they're walking around the sand and going, this is not it, right? This is not the place at all. And then on top of that, they have kind of a bit of a selective memory, they're looking back and suddenly they're forgetting about all the hard labor and the servitude and the lack of freedom. And they're just thinking about, you know, in Egypt, we had lots of meat. We could sit around the campfire and eat all kinds of meat. And we had lots of bread and there was lots of water to drink. It was much better than the wilderness. Okay. So so you can understand some of that reaction, but I think there's something deeper going on here that we miss because we don't understand their view of the world. I really think that they had become indoctrinated in the idolatry of Egypt. And that had been weaved into the very fabric of how they saw the world. I want us to look at a passage in the book of Ezekiel. Um, 
the elders of Israel come to Ezekiel and they're inquiring of the Lord. And what God does through Ezekiel is he, he, he gives them a little bit of a history lesson. And it is a fascinating history lesson because he points out things I think we, we miss when we think about Israel and Egypt. So, so bear with me, but I, this is just fascinating stuff to me. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, he's speaking through Ezekiel the prophet, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. So he's speaking to, to Israel in Egypt. And think about it. They didn't have an Old Testament in Egypt, right? They didn't attend synagogue, <laughs> They only knew of Yahweh about rumors. He was like a tribal God. But God is saying, look, I I reveal myself. We don't know how he did this, but he told them about himself to some degree. It was limited revelation when they're in the midst of Egypt. That's fascinating. With uplifted hand, I said to them, and this is what gave them hope around the promised land. I'm the Lord of your, your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. So on the one hand, they have this promise, but on the other hand, he's he's recognizing the fact that they're entrapped in idolatry. It's the fabric of the culture they live in and, and they have They've drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Uh, um, this is interesting. Uh, next slide, sorry. Uh, but they rebelled against me and would not listen to me and they did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on. They did not forsake the idols of Egypt. So when they come out, even though they've had this massive experience with Yahweh, their God, they're still ingrained in their thinking in idolatry. We'll talk about that in a moment. And this is really fascinating. So I said, I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. In other words, part of what they're experiencing, the slavery in Egypt is a result of their own disobedience. In a sense, it's God's discipline and wrath because their involvement in the idolatry in Egypt. And it gets more interesting. You know, if someone asks you, why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? You can tell them he did it for his namesake. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and in whose sight I revealed myself to the Israelites. Therefore, I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And God is saying, look, the, the ultimate bottom line reason I brought you out is to protect my reputation because I said you are my people. Isn't that fascinating? But they're ingrained in idolatry. So they have this worldview Uh, um, And I think we need to talk about that for a moment. The Egyptians had a pantheon of gods, of idols that they worshipped. Now, in our worldview, we see idols as simply inanimate objects made of wood or stone or precious metals, and we see them as powerless. That's a false perception. Because, yes, the idols themselves may be inanimate of wood and stone, but there are oftentimes spiritual powers behind those idols that are very real, that in the Old Testament are referred to as Elohim or gods, gods with a little g. And those gods, those supernatural beings are very powerful. You see this in the story with Egypt when Moses comes and he throws down the rod and it turns into a snake. And what happens? An Egyptian musician comes with a rod and throws it down, and it turns into a snake. And you're going, how'd they do that? You, you see, we, we have a very rationalistic view of the world where we eliminate that kind of thing. We think monotheism says that God is the only God. Monotheism doesn't say God is the only supernatural being. Monotheism says that God is the supreme supernatural being. There are other gods that exercise power. 
And that becomes very attractive to the Israelites when they're in Egypt because they see these gods as powers that they interact with that influence their lives. Now, their understanding of the gods, in their mind, the gods were very human-like. In other words, sometimes they could be good, sometimes they could be bad, uh, sometimes they needed to be manipulated, uh, they were very capricious, they were very unreliable. Uh, scripture seems to indicate that they even were, were sexual in some ways and could interact with humans, the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6. I, I mean, it's a very different understanding of this supernatural world, but they're very human-like. So... Uh, because they were what they acted like, sometimes good, sometimes bad, capricious, you didn't know what they were going to do. They, they, they were very fallible. Thus, they were very untrustworthy. And here's the biggest difference. The gods in the Egyptian pantheon did not have intrinsic qualities. In other words, they didn't have qualities that, that were part of their essence. You couldn't say that that, that, that god was good. You could say that that God acted in a good way or that God acted in a bad way or that God at that moment was just, but it's not a reflection of the intrinsic quality inside of them. And what that means is, yeah, God may treat you good one moment, but he may treat you bad the next. One day he may be just and the other he may be unjust and he's capricious and you never know exactly how you should deal with him. So you kind of tread softly among the gods. And Yahweh came on, on the scene and one of the fundamental differences about Yahweh, our, the God we worship, is he has intrinsic qualities. We, we say God is good not just because he acts good in certain circumstances, we say he acts good because that's the nature of his being. It's very different. And because God is intrinsically good in the essence of his being, what that means is you can trust him. He's going to be faithful. He's going to be consistent. You know how he's going to respond in relationship to his character. Does that make sense? But, but, but the Israelites, they don't get that. I mean, think about their experience so far. They, they, they have seen... The 10 plagues, which are incredibly powerful. I mean, they manipulate nature in ways that are unimaginable. They've seen the, the death of the, the, the firstborn and the visitation of, uh, uh, of the destroying angel. They, they've seen the Red Sea open up, and they've seen themselves go through on dry ground, which is pretty freaking amazing. And then they see that same Red Sea close on the Egyptian army. So now when you're on the other side and you've been taught that Yahweh is this tribal God and uh, he's your people's God and he does all this power, what your conclusion is, he's really powerful. But you think he's like all the other gods. And just because he did good things and was exercising his power in a way you liked for you, Yesterday and against the Egyptians, maybe today he's going to exercise his power against you. So when you get in the desert, you're scared because you don't know what this God is going to do. He may give you water or he may send a plague. What do I do? So it's like they need a new theological education about who God is. That's the training they're getting in the wilderness. Look at um, chapter 15. This is right after the wood has been thrown and the water has become sweet, the first test. It says there, the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction. And this word for instruction is actually the Hebrew word Torah, which is what we get the Old Testament, the word that describes the Old Testament as instruction. So he's, he's beginning to give them revelation or instruction of who he is. Instruction for them and put them to the test or 
training. He, he said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, if you listen to me and you're obedient, I will not bring, it's interesting, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. Tells you what they were worried about, doesn't it? And God is saying, look, I'm, I'm a faithful God. If, you, if you're obedient to me, I'm not going to send those diseases on you. And then notice what he says, for I am the Lord who heals you. This is a notion that, that this God is actually for you. Because all the Egyptians' gods, they, they didn't care about you. They cared about them. This God is different. He's the one who heals you. And then he shows them that in very concrete ways, right? They came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there, camped near the water. Uh, that harks back to the garden. So what God is doing, he's beginning to educate them about the reality of who he is. Because their understanding of God need to be, needed to be tweaked. Now the problem is we think when we come to this stuff that, that um, we've got it pretty well wired in terms of understanding who God is. But the reality is we have misperceptions of God just like they did. They saw God as very human-like in one way. Do you know we see God very human-like in another way? That, that we fall victim to the same temptation. We participate in idolatry, not with sticks and stones and little images, but we participate in idolatry by taking God and making him into what we want him to be. And usually what, he want him to, what we want him to be is just like us, only magnified. Listen to a quote by Karl Barth. Um, Karl Barth was a German theologian. I don't agree with all of his theology, so if you're nervous that I'm quoting from Barth, don't be too nervous. He says some very true things. This is one of them. He says, our relation to God is ungodly. We suppose that we know what we are saying when we say God. We assign to him the highest place in our world, and in so doing, we place him fundamentally on one line with ourselves and with things. We press ourselves into proximity with him, and so all unthinking, we make him nigh unto ourselves. What he's saying is, uh, even in saying the word God, we, we have to conceptualize him, and we conceptualize him as if he's like us, right? Like us. We allow ourselves an ordinary communication with him. We permit ourselves to reckon with him as though we were not extraordinary. Uh, this were not extraordinary behavior on our part. We dare to deck ourselves out as his companions, patrons, advisors, and commissioners. Secretly, we are the masters in this relationship. We are not concerned with God, but with our own requirements to which God must adjust himself. Our well-regulated, pleasurable life longs for some hours of devotion, some prolongation into infinity. And so when we set God upon the throne of the world, we mean by God ourselves. In believing on him, we justify, enjoy, and adore ourselves. It's a very subtle form of idolatry, but it's very real. You see, because we've lost this understanding that all those God is imminent and we can have a relationship with him at the same time he is transcendent and mysterious and beyond us and unfathomable and that all of life and creation is about him. I wonder sometimes if we're not as bad of idolaters as the Egyptians We've just made a different kind of idol that's far more subtle. So, question. When you're in the wilderness, and, and this is where we want to unpack some lessons, 
how do you respond? How do you respond? I'll just clue you in. These aren't real profound. They're kind of obvious. All right. But they're really true. (laughs) First one is, don't grumble. That's a really important lesson in this text. The word for grumble is used nine times in these three chapters. When the author uses the word a bunch of times, you're supposed to pay attention to it. And what he's saying is, look, don't be like the Israelites. Don't grumble. Grumble is a word that in the Hebrew means to murmur. Webster says grumbling is complaining about the realities of life with a bad attitude in an understated way. And I think that nails it. (laughs) But at some point you have to say, look, is just complaining wrong? Or is it grumbling a certain kind of complaining? I mean, what makes grumbling a sin? Should you never be negative about anything? Should you never objectively critique the reality that you're in? Is that what's being stated here? Not at all. This, there, there's some nuances here. What, what kind of grumbling is this? What, what about this grumbling makes it a sin? All right? Two things. This grumbling is always against God. The word grumble is used like nine times. Seven of those times, it's, it's linked with the word against. In other words, they're grumbling against, and, and it's always linked to Moses or Moses and Aaron. So in other words, they're grumbling against Moses. Now Moses is quick to point out, when you're grumbling against me, you're not grumbling against me, you're actually grumbling against God. And when you understand that, then you begin to, to realize Oh, so, so they're making God their adversary. <laughs> they're in their grumbling are making God their enemy. Oh, now, now that makes a lot more sense. I can see why that's sin. But that's only part of it. Their grumbling not only makes God their enemy, but it is rooted in unbelief and doubt about his goodness. Look at uh, Exodus 16. This is Moses speaking. He says, who are we that you should grumble? Oh, I'm sorry. Grumble gets this. This is a passage that shows their grumbling is against Moses. I want the, uh, yeah, thank you. That was my fault because I skipped a verse. Um, these two passages, 16.3 and 17.3b, uh, these are the people talking to Moses and they're saying, you brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Are you getting the implication? It's not just that they're grumbling against God, but they're saying, look, you did this with evil intent. Why do they think that? Well, understand their view of the gods. Sometimes they treat you good. Sometimes they treat you bad. They just watched God annihilate the Egyptians. They're scared. They're next. You brought us out here. Yeah, it looked like you were doing us a favor, but all, you're just getting us a position, so we're going to die. <laughs> Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? So grumbling is a sin when it's grumbling against God and it's grounded in doubt. When you begin to grumble in a way that makes your God your enemy and it's rooted in questions about his goodness, you're on very shaky ground. So here's the question. Are you a grumbler? Now, I'm not talking about run-of-the-mill complaining. You know, a complainer is just somebody who uh, has to vocalize every negative thing in their life. They're annoying, but I'm not sure it's always sinful. Those are just people you don't want to be around. I can think of names. Anyway. Um, <laughs> This is, this is something beyond that. Are you a grumbler? In other words, when you're in the wilderness, do you start blaming God for your circumstances? 
yeah, my marriage sucks, and the reason it sucks is because God got me in this marriage, and this was the person he told me I should marry, and look what a mess it is. It's all his fault. Are you a grumbler? Blaming God? And, and, and when you grumble, are, are, are you making, are you doubting his goodness? Yeah, I'm in the wilderness and, 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 and my situation sucks and not only is God to blame, but, but he's out to get me. This is just his punishment because God doesn't like me. He doesn't love me. He, he's working. And God becomes your enemy. And what's interesting is it's not something you necessarily vocalize to a lot of people, right? Because grumbling is like a murmur. But it's what's going on inside. I wonder if we grumble more than we think we grumble. Do we grumble? Second lesson. Instead of grumbling, trust God. And he's going to explain to the Israelites, in a sense, by object lesson, why they should trust him. And there's two, two reasons. First of all, he's present. This is fascinating to me. When they come out of Egypt and they go into the wilderness, they have a cloud that leads them by day and, and a pillar of fire that leads them by night. So they have manifestations of the reality of God that are around them all the time. But do you know that's not enough for them? In fact, in chapter 17 at the end, one of the questions they're asking is, is God really with us? Is he really among us? So here's what God does. Uh, um, when they grumble about not having food and bread and meat, God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you quail in the evening and I'm gonna give you manna in the morning. And when Aaron is announcing that to them, um, look what happens. Verse, six, verse 9, verse 16, uh, chapter 16. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. So they're going to get the announcement what God's going to do, give them meat and manna. But notice what happens. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Now, if you go through the Old Testament and look at those places where the glory of the Lord appears, typically when that happens, what they see is kind of a human figure that's made of fire. You see it in Isaiah 8 when he goes into the temple. You see it in Ezekiel on the mobile, it's the mobile glory of God. And what's at the center of that is this image, uh, uh, almost human-like on fire. I, I think what God is trying to say, hey, remember, I'm in your midst, I'm here with you, look. He's trying to convince him that he is present. I mean, go back to, to Moses in the burning bush, right? One of the questions that Moses asks is, who, who should I tell them is sending me? What's your name? Do you remember God's response to that? I, I, he, he says, my name is the verb to be, I am. And, and when you begin to explore the meaning of the notion of I am, it's this idea, I was, I am, I will be, I am the one who is. And the implication of being the one who is, is, I'm the one who is always present. Now, what is interesting to me is oftentimes we think that uh, uh, the wilderness is the place where God is absent. And that is not true. The wilderness is the place where God is present. But we just don't always see him. And that's the challenge better at seeing him after the fact. But the reality is in the midst of your pain and difficult and harsh circumstances and when life is brutal, one of the things if you're going to trust God is you have to be convinced that God is there in the midst of it. That's where trust starts. And he is. 
You may not see him. You may not feel him. You might not experience him. But remember, God is other and mysterious. So we might not see him, feel him, or experience him, but that doesn't mean he's not there. Not only does he want them to trust him, if we go back to the slide, because he's present, he wants to convince them that he will, he will provide. And if you look at these three tests, that, that's the point, isn't it? They get into crisis, they grumble, kind of make God their enemy, and then God graciously gives them what they need every time. And the point is, hey, guys, I will take care of you. I will provide. And he gives them manna. The problem is, God gives them what they need, which is manna, but that's not all they want. <laughs> Think about manna. It's very instructive, right? Manna is very versatile, right? You can bake it. You can fry it. You can boil it. You can make it into pancakes. You can make manna tacos. You can make manna oatmeal. You can make manna bread. You, <laughs> you can make uh, manna smoothies. I mean, you can do all, and I'm sure they did. But have you ever eaten one thing multiple days in a row, morning, noon, and night. Man, when you had manna for breakfast that first time, it was awesome. And it was pretty good for lunch, and it was okay for dinner. And the next morning, you forgot what it was like the day before, so it tasted pretty good. At lunch, you wanted something different. So this time, you fried it. And at dinner, you had leftover fried manna. The next day, I mean, after a while, you've kind of manipulated manna every way you could. And you get up in the morning, you want, I want anything but manna. And God says, no, you don't understand. It's not about trusting me when I give you what you want. It's about trusting me because I'm going to give you what you need. And what you need to survive in the wilderness is manna. Now, God is very careful to point out at the end of chapter 16 that they ate manna for 40 years. And by the end, I'm sure they thought manna sucked. It's interesting. You see, trusting God is trusting him to give you what you need, not necessarily what you want, but even then it's trusting him to give you what you need to fulfill his purpose. And that makes it even more difficult. <laughs> because we think God's given us what we need so we can be happy. He's given us what we need so we can be comfortable. He's given us what we need so we can be fulfilled. Because that's kind of how we've sold the faith in Jesus thing, right? It's really about you. And folks, it's really not about you. It's about him, right? Why did he bring them out of Egypt? For his namesake and his reputation. You know, we look at life sometimes as if it's a novel. Our life is a novel. And when we look at it that way, we think, we're the main character of our story. And the novel is about me. <laughs> and, and what I want to do and how I want to live and how I want to gain significance and how I want to be happy and get fulfilled. And it, it's a story about me. Because that's our perspective of our life. And, you know, it would be interesting to read our novel from God's perspective. Because the first thing we'd figure out, oh, crud, I'm not the main character. Right, it's not a story about you, it's a story about him and how he wants to use you for his purposes. And that's a very different novel. And we don't like it. Because we live in a culture that teaches us 
Life is about us. We're to have everything our way. The goal is our happiness. What do we teach our kids? Participation trophies, because it's all about you. We want, our biggest concern is that they have a good self-image, that they, they value. I mean, it's all centered around the generation of me. It's no wonder we question God and get frustrated. Someone has asked C.S. Lewis, um, what is the religion that is best at making its adherents happy? And his answer, while at last, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. I thought that was a pretty good answer. Okay, last lesson. Realize that how we respond to the challenge molds who we become more than the challenge itself. Remember, God isn't really about getting us out of the wilderness. He's about developing us. Do you realize that the children of Israel, none of them except Caleb and Joshua, get out of the wilderness? (laughs) And, And that they get worse when they're in the wilderness because they don't respond well? The wilderness will either make you better or bitter. It makes them bitter. Hebrews chapter 3 says that be careful of your grumbling because it can harden your heart. Harden your heart. The point this morning is when you're in the wilderness, don't grumble. Trust God. Because how you respond is forming who you are. I'm going to pray this morning to end our service. Um, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to, to, to just look at your situation. I know some this morning feel like they're in the midst of the wilderness. Um, I want to lift you up. Father, I pray for us. I pray especially for those who are struggling because life is hard and difficult and, and for them right now, brutal. Lord, I know sometimes they don't have a sense that you're present with them, I I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. Help them understand that you are in the midst of the wilderness. You're there. Help them believe, Lord, that you will provide. Help them have the faith to trust you and your goodness and your love and that ultimately you will give them everything they need to accomplish your purpose in their lives. Father, make that real to them this morning. In Christ's name, amen. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.